I had been educated in America at Harvard, but California was something that I hadn't even dreamed of. I found myself here at Esalen. I found a, an extraordinary new range of things going on I hadn't known about. And when I was in San Francisco, a friend who I knew from Europe said to me, just the day before I left, there's somebody you must meet. He's called Terence McKenna. He said, you get on this bus in San Francisco. You get off at Santa Rosa two hours later, and uh, Terence will appear in a large 1956 Buick or whatever. Um, <laughs> and in this large 1956 Buick, we headed off into the woods. And there I met both Terence and Ralph, who was there for the day. We had a most interesting time. The meeting with Ralph and Terence was a step further towards seeing how one could begin to dream of a world in which nature was seen as alive, in which the imagination permeated all reality. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, I am pleased to present you a trilogue of sorts drawn from the Esalen archives, featuring the great poet of psychedelics, Terence McKenna, and two of his close compatriots, Rupert Sheldrake and Ralph Abraham. You likely know the background of the magical and majestic Terence McKenna, so I'll skip that here, except to say that this is probably the fifth or sixth episode of Voices of Esalen that features McKenna. And I have to say that as I continue to sort of sample cautiously from the great well of his work he delivered here at Esalen, I think I'm kind of beginning to get him, which is to say that I'm getting that I don't fully get him and I don't have to get him. For you see, Terence McKenna spools forth a kind of complicated, highly erudite babble of text that is designed to be imbibed or absorbed in an almost osmotic fashion. In other words, his words don't necessarily need to be decoded, though I'm sure there are minds out there capable of doing so. They can simply be enjoyed for their texture, for their sound, and absolutely for their message, though the message can be and, and is so often abstract or so dense or so inventive so as to render it difficult to comprehend. I started lecturing weekly at Esalen in the afternoons, and I get to speak about various historical topics that concern the human potential movement and Esalen history. And so one of these lectures is organized around a history of altered states at Esalen. So of course, I have to show a very small piece of a Terence McKenna talk. You can't really talk about altered states at Esalen without talking about McKenna. So I take this talk that I, I chose pretty much at random from 1992, and there's this pithy little quote from that talk that goes something like, our task is not to understand. Our task is to appreciate. And I feel like I'm getting this more and more, not just with McKenna's work, but with everything really related to meaning, everything related to my experience here on earth. My task is to appreciate. The more I get this, the more fun I'm starting to have. And the more I get this, the more I accept my own rather absurdly small role in the universe. My God, it's a blessing. It really is to be the recipient of the message that I don't matter that much. <laughs> and that's, that's my Terrence rant. I want to tell you about the other members of this trialogue that was delivered over the course of several days at Esalen in September of 1989. Rupert Sheldrake. Rupert Sheldrake is a scientist and an author, sometimes accused of being a new age author, who's achieved some level of notoriety primarily due to his widely debated concept of morphic resonance. What is morphic resonance? So this concept essentially suggests that there is a kind of collective memory in nature. So according to Sheldrake, similar forms or morphic units, his term, 
resonate and influence each other through time and space. That's it. For example, he suggests that if rats learn a new trick in one part of the world, rats elsewhere will learn it more quickly, as the morphic field, so to speak, of rats has been tuned to this new behavior. In Sheldrake's words, natural systems, quote, inherit a collective memory from all previous things of their kind. And to him, this collective memory is responsible for, quote, telepathy-type interconnections between organisms. Some critics have cited a certain lack of evidence for the concept of morphic resonance, uh, go figure, and the ways that it contrasts with established thought in genetics, embryology, neuroscience, biochemistry. But this is precisely the sort of reasoning that a man like Terence McKenna, genius that he was, who was highly scientific and precise in his thinking, yet also wildly out of the box and creative when it came to systems of thinking, would be fascinated by. And also, Sheldrake has a delightful, educated British voice, so it makes everything he says sound real. The more research I did, the better fit I found it made with the facts. Finally, we have Ralph Abraham, mathematician, pioneer in the study of chaos theory. So what is chaos theory? Chaos theory explores how any action, no matter how small, could lead to complex and unpredictable behavior in physical systems. Abraham founded the Visual Math Institute in Santa Cruz, where he continues to teach, and his work, like McKenna's, like Sheldrake's, examines consciousness, the nature of reality, and the intersection of science and spirituality. And, like the other two persons showcased in this delightful episode of Voices of Esalen, drawn from the prodigious, voluminous Esalen archives, Abraham is undoubtedly a really smart Person. I hope you'll enjoy this trialogue. This episode is really just a part one of a really long, cool, strange conversation that would eventually lead to a book authored by these three dudes, if I'm not mistaken, Trialogues at the Edge of the West. So, more to follow. Now this. I should introduce my two co-presenters. Most of you know them already, of course. Rupert Sheldrake is the author of A New Science of Life and The Presence of the Past, books which stirred more controversy in British biology than it had seen in 30 years and got the British journal Nature to call his first book A Candidate for Burning, <laughs> which suddenly turned the thought of Rupert Sheldrake into a civil liberties issue because that's pretty strong talk. Uh, Rupert's idea, which he will, I'm sure, unfold for you in his inimitable style, is very dear to my heart because they dovetail and support uh, each other. We're both rowing our canoes the same way. Rupert and uh, our colleague of many years standing and my acquaintance since 1972, <laughs> a, a hellraiser from the 60s, the man who, uh, well, no, I won't even say that. <laughs> a hellraiser from the 60s, a man who brought uh, mathematics to a new fever pitch in the field of dynamics and, and systems modeling. Ralph has been sort of the rock of Gibraltar of uh, the psychedelic end of uh, eggheadism, at least for many people that uh, I've lived around. So um, he, 
<laughs> runs the Center for the Study of Visual Mathematics in Santa Cruz, is a professor at UC Santa Cruz, author of Foundations of Mechanics and countless other books, plays, papers, and uh, so forth and so on. So it will be the three of us attempting to sort of weave together our different perspectives on a very large and sort of hard to grapple with paradigm shift that is taking place in the way the Western mind does its business with reality. And, you know, it may be the last paradigm shift we ever get. So when this cat lands, it's going to have to land on its feet because immediately facing it will be the theater of activity that is the consequence of the old way of doing it, which was a very bad way of doing it. So we have to uh, be prepared for a whole new dynamic, a whole new way of linking systems together, thinking about solutions, thinking about the past and ourselves in the world and we'll talk more about this at the end of the circle. Right, well, I'm Rupert Sheldrake. I'm a biologist by background. I studied biology because I was interested in animals and plants. And when I was studying it at Cambridge, I began to have terrible doubts about what I was doing because everything that really interested me about animals and plants somehow vanished when I got into the biochemistry laboratories. I was majoring in biochemistry, and I did a PhD in biochemistry there. Um, but there's a curious thing about biochemistry. You're doing biochemistry to study the molecular basis of life. Yet the very first thing you do in the laboratory is kill whatever you're studying, grind it up, extract the enzymes, and then in a test tube, study the properties of some of these molecules extracted from this killed organism. And it began to occur to me that perhaps this wasn't the best way to understand life. But I didn't quite know what to do about it because everybody else thought it was definitely was the best way to study life and in fact there was no other valid way. This set me thinking and I then came to realize there was a whole tradition of biology called vitalism uh, which had tried to adopt a totally different approach to the understanding of life a school which flourished in the 19th century and which went on till the 1920s. When it underwent a transformation into the organismic or holistic philosophy of nature, which really treats the whole of the universe as alive. This was a totally new idea, a new perspective for me. And I began to see that um, the science of biology could be reformed, uh, that this idea that living organisms are truly alive rather than being just machines. That's the official doctrine, the mechanistic theory says living organisms are just complicated machines. Believe it or not, still the official doctrine of academic biology and academic medicine. And uh, this set up a tremendous tension and I began to see there was a new way of doing it and I began to see the outlines of a new theory. I had several insights into how this might happen. I stayed at Cambridge for about seven or eight years doing research. Then I went to India, where I worked in an agricultural institute. Uh, these ideas went on developing. I then saw how I could bring them all together in a synthesis and into a new, new way of seeing how biology could be done. And I wrote a book while still in India called A New Science of Life. In it, 
the basic idea I'm suggesting is that there's a kind of inherent memory in all kinds of animals and plants. Each species has its own collective memory. So each member of the species draws on this collective memory and in turn contributes to it. <coughs> this means that the instincts of animals, for example, the behavior of cuckoos, the spinning of webs by spiders, are like a memory, a habit of the species. This inheritance takes place by the process I call morphic resonance, by a kind of invisible, intangible memory. Um, um, a kind of resonance between present and past organisms of the same kind. The same theory helps explain how our own memory works by a resonance between our own past and our present states. It leads to the idea that our memories aren't stored in our brains, but that we're tuning into them by this process of morphic resonance. Anyway, this theory, which I'd been developing, as the more research I did, the better fit I found it made with the facts. I found there was already considerable circumstantial evidence for this idea. But as you can imagine, uh, this idea wouldn't be very popular in the realms of academic biochemistry. And it didn't win over instantly all my colleagues in the biochemistry department at Cambridge either. So when my book on this subject was published, which I wrote in India, um, there was a considerable controversy in the scientific world I've, uh, the theory is testable by experiment. Various experiments have been done, it is being tested. I've been developing and working on this theory for the last 10 years. My last book, The Presence of the Past, that came out recently, develops it in more detail. And currently I'm writing a book called The Rebirth of Nature, which is about the idea that the entire cosmos is alive rather than just inanimate and mechanistic. What difference that makes. Well, when... Uh, a New Science of Life came out in 1982 in America. It came out a year earlier in England. I came to California because it was published in Los Angeles by Tarcher. I'd never been to California before. And I suddenly found myself in a wonderland which I hadn't even thought about. I'd lived in India for the previous seven years. Before that, I'd spent most of my time in Cambridge, England. I had been educated in America at Harvard, spent a year there doing philosophy. Um, but California was something that I hadn't even dreamed of. I found myself here at Esalen. I found a, an extraordinary new range of things going on I hadn't known about. And when I was in San Francisco, uh, a friend who I knew from Europe said to me, just the day before I left, there's somebody you must meet. Uh, he's called Terence McKenna. He said, you get on this bus in San Francisco. You get off at Santa Rosa two hours later, and uh, Terence will appear in a large... 1956 Buick or whatever, um, <laughs> and that'll be Terence McKenna. I didn't know much about Terence, uh, so I went up there, and in this large 1956 Buick, we headed off into the woods in uh, Sonoma County, where Terence lives, and there I met both Terence and Ralph, who was there for the day. We had a most interesting time. I found that uh, part of my interest in these other realms of reality, of course, like many people in this room, was stimulated by experience with psychedelic substances. Um, this was before I went to India. When I arrived in India, I found that India is a kind of psychedelic realm anyway. You know, it's, it's just an amazing place. So in Terence, I found somebody who knew about that whole realm, who shared with me an interest in India, since it played an important part in his development and who had views about the nature of reality which complemented my own in an extraordinary way. 
My own theory is about memory and habit in nature. Terence, I found, had developed a theory about novelty and creativity in nature, a theory about the quality of time and the creative process as it is related to the ongoing flux of events. And Ralph had a kind of mathematical theory which was just the kind of thing that the view of nature I was trying to develop needed, the idea of nature being drawn by goals or attractors in the mathematical science of dynamics. There's this uh, model of, the na of reality being pulled from ahead by things called attractors. Um, it's a teleological, animistic view of nature, which dressed up in the guise of mathematical models, which I found most fascinating. And so for me, the meeting with Ralph and Terence was a step further towards seeing how one could begin to dream of a world in which nature was seen as alive, in which the imagination permeated all reality, in which animals and plants are seen as part of the living texture, the living, the living components, the cells in, in the life of Gaia, and Gaia in the life of the cosmos as a whole. In fact, a view of the world uh, as alive, which recalls in some respects the old cosmologies of the ancient world, where the cosmos was seen as a living organism, where they thought of the whole cosmos as having a soul, the soul of the world, the, the anima mundi. And so I found Terence and Ralph both people who were interested in looking at, at, at trying to form a new understanding of what we could call the soul of the world. So our discussions over the years, over the last seven years, have spun around many aspects of these things. And when the idea came up of us coming here together at Esalen to do something together uh, in public, we've so far talked a great deal in private and reacts synergistically in a way uh, that I've found extremely stimulating and inspiring. Uh, when this opportunity came up, I was delighted that it was possible to be here, and I'm delighted you're all here. And what we're hoping to do is to talk about aspects of the world soul. And it turned out when we were discussing this, that each of us seemed to be representing a principle. And these three principles in interaction form a kind of trinity. And the structure of our trialogue is going to reflect the different interactions of those principles. The principle which I'm representing is uh, the principle of evolutionary creativity. How is it that the whole of nature is somehow creative in an evolutionary sense? The basis of my entire theory suggests that the laws of nature are not fixed eternal truths that have always been there, but habits which have evolved in the course of evolution itself. Uh, so I think there's a kind of habit principle in nature. There must also be a creative principle in nature to give the universe its evolutionary and yet regular way of behaving. So in these trialogues, I'm going to be representing the uh, principle of evolutionary creativity, the evolutionary principle, including the habit that builds up and the creation that leads to new forms. Well, in many ways, uh, <clears throat> my history is similar to Rupert's, in many ways different. I think what we share most notably was a very early involvement in nature and a fascination with what used to be called natural history, which means bugs, rocks, butterflies, and stars. And uh, my own life has not been uh, particularly academic. 
I graduated from the University of California, but managed to stretch the degree-taking process out over 12 years that went from 1965 to whatever that is. And a lot of traveling in India. I thought I was an art historian. In my early LSD experiences, I seemed to see uh, motifs and structures that gave me an interest in uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And I went to India with the intent of studying the Tibetan language and quickly found that the whole thing was just overwhelming and that I was just, you know, a human atom in the sea of India and that the notion of uh, encompassing or understanding what this was was clearly uh, the task of a lifetime. And several times in my life I have acted out this sort of ricocheting relationship between the humanities and the sciences. At times, you know, losing myself in the study of certain schools of poetry or literature or painting, and then at other times spending years reading the philosophy of science and epistemic uh, basis of physics and this sort of thing. Always trying to get a resolution on the content of my experience, my lived experience, which included the psychedelic experience, which for me from very early on was this kind of tremendous uh, mystery or conundrum which was set down in the middle of my being. And it still continues like that. I keep returning to that, testing all the ideas against the fullness of experience that that represents. Well, for me, just having the sort of mind that I do, this meant model building and an interest in <coughs> the models of others. And uh, in the 1970s, I carried out a critique of, of scientific method and the, the implicit philosophical assumptions of science and convinced myself that it was pretty much uh, just whistling past the graveyard, that they, you know, it was all done with smoke and mirrors. The actual understanding of what it means to be a living, thinking organism is nowhere tangential to what science is telling us uh, about the world. And so I became interested then in revisioning uh, causality. It seemed to me that the problem lie somewhere with the definition of time, that there had been a misunderstanding. And uh, I, of course, when you read dissident views on time, or when you did in the 50s and 60s, you read Carl Jung, who wrote about what was called synchronicity which he called an a-causal connecting principle. And I spend a lot of time on that, but it isn't ultimately satisfying. If you analyze it carefully, it isn't ultimately an explanation. It's more like a counter-mapping. It tells you that connectedness can occur differently than in uh, the stream of cause and effect, but it doesn't exactly explain to you 
why this is. So then I, I became interested uh, in other views of time and elaborated my own theory, which Rupert elab uh, mentioned, about novelty. I began to see that what I was groping toward was the notion that time is not a flat plane, but it's some kind of topological manifold, some kind of surface over which events flow, sometimes fast, sometimes slow, in the same way that water makes its way over a landscape. And where flow is rapid, phase transitions occur and turbulence enters the picture. And turbulence is mathematically a very different creature from laminar flow. Ralph is an expert on all of this. But anyway, I wanted to follow very deeply and to its ultimate conclusions this notion that what we had left out of our model of the world was the idea that time is actually composed not of a homogeneous medium, but of some set of elements or interconnected parts which are in flux. And out of this I created progressively more and more formal models. And uh, they were like novelty engines. And before the word fractals was even invented, these curves, these recursive equations that I was working with were in fact fractal, uh, of the fractal type. So I think what's happening, you know, is there's a general awareness of a need for new mathematical objects and new models of process to connect up the world in a meaningful way. I think it was P.W. Bridgman in one of his essays said that uh, a coincidence is what you have left over when you apply a bad theory. You know, if you're getting a lot of coincidences after you get your theory in place, then maybe the theory is not so good. Well, our world is haunted by coincidence. The main difference between our world and the world that science tells us we're living in is that science denies the quirky, freaky, cosmic giggle, high plottedness, completely improbable, totally quirky humor that binds everything together and that makes it something other than an engine in which atoms blindly run, in, in Whitehead's phrase. Well, this kind of thinking uh, and looking for colleagues and support led me uh, first to Ralph, who was great good support, but you know, he held my hand long years before I even thought I understood him. I'm not sure I understand him now. Uh, and by him, I mean only the tiny iota of him, which is this crusty little theory out of which we make our bread. Rupert, I read um, uh, The New Science of Life and had read all the other radical biology which preceded it and knew that there hadn't been anything for 15 years, that you know, Schrodinger brilliantly anticipated uh, the discovery of DNA and then Joseph Needham and L.L. White and, uh, well, Eric Yonch 
should be mentioned, actually, as a precursor of us all, I think. I mean, Eric Jansch was a great pioneer, a great soul, and he saw very deeply into whole systems, as did Ilya Prigozhin, the Belgian thermodynamicist. And I think uh, a lot of all of what we're doing comes out of that. What Prigozhin showed that just brought down the house was that there could be uh, perturbations of physical systems that were unpredictable and that would cause the whole system to actually move to a more ordered state than the initial state. And this perturbation to higher states of order looks suspiciously like a violation of the uh, supposedly inviolate second law of thermodynamics. So that looks, you know, like a, a doorway into a, an energetic hyperspace, somehow a way around the no free lunch uh, rule. We'll talk more about this, but these guys, Prigozhin and Yanch, anticipated and, and were in many ways inspirational to what we all are doing. So then before I hand this on to Ralph, um, in terms of the way the weekend will be structured and to give us something to hang all this on, Rupert mentioned the triadic structure of the dialogues and that he would be re representing the creative evolutionary impulse. I will represent uh, the, the divine imagination, the imagination a la William Blake. In other words, this domain, this legacy of the human mind in which culture and dream and personal and historical aspiration takes place. We're seeing all of these things as aspects of the world's soul. You see the notion of morphogenesis, the notion of fields that shape form, eventually this question of how intelligent is the world soul or how mind-like is the Gaian control system is just going to give way to the perception that the answer lies probably to the left of, well, more mind-like than yourself, because it is not we who are in a position to define these things. So the, the notion of the world soul is properly vivified and pictured and endowed with qualities and properties that are uh, exponential. So I will take that position. My great concern uh, as far as these dialogues is uh, concerned is N novelty, the emergence of the unpredictable and the truly new out of the background of the recursive and iterative processes of nature. How can there be novelty? And what exactly is it? And since very clearly we are the cutting edge of its self-expression, then unraveling this question about what is novelty is going to take us very close to the question of what is human nature? What are we doing in this phase space? What is the nature of the turbulence that we necessarily have to describe as ourselves? Rupert, Terence, I'm Ralph.
So creation, imagination, my mask is chaos. <laughs> so I was uh, brought up in a field of music, but I was attracted to mathematics early. And when I was 14, I played in the State Symphony. After that, I started in mathematics. And I became a professor at Berkeley when I was 23. I had an easy way in mathematics. And the, the way the uh, system works, the carpet is unrolled in front of you. You know, you, can, you have a few choices, but basically before you even know what's happening, the carpet is unrolled and you've, you're down the runnel into whatever you can do that's useful to the system. In this process, I, I lost uh, nature. My interest in anything natural atrophied. I mean, as a child, I suppose I, I was interested in everything. And for this loss, I mean, I don't know the names of trees, for example. I can smell them, but I, I can hardly tell them apart. But there was a great gain because I love it out there. I love to be off the planet. I always did. And uh, to this day, I spend very little time on planet Earth. So it went on in this way. And by 1967, I was a professor at Princeton. I had written three books on mathematics that you need a microscope to read. <laughs> And I had been studying for a long while chaos, but we didn't call it chaos then, and we didn't see in it any role in the natural world or in social transformation or in the evolution of consciousness because we didn't think about anything out there. You know, we're just working on this. But personally, my expectation was that anything I invented or discovered or assisted in developing would become abundantly useful in the human sphere in about a century or so. So one day after my third book was done and I was exhausted and I looked up and all the students were out in the courtyard demonstrating about the Vietnam War and to open the university to women students and, and so on. I said, what exactly is, is going on? Here they said, take this. <laughs> and so, like many people in that year or around that time, Nick, in 1967, my uh, career had a bifurcation. <laughs> and I went off the track. And maybe I was, uh, as far as the track was concerned, I might have been permanently burned out by then. I mean, morning, noon, and night in the world of mathematical symbols, it, it's enough, you know. So I went off the track with uh, psychedelics, with meditation, but especially with searching, with trying everything. And uh, eventually I was living in a cave in the Himalayas. And I got, again, uh, a call to come back. And when I returned to California, I was standing on a street corner in Santa Cruz in white pajamas. And a car stopped. An old friend from a previous lifetime said, there's somebody you have to meet, get in the car. I had nothing to do, it sounded okay, and in that time, I believed that everything goes perfectly. You just go along with the flow, as they said. I didn't know it would be a two-hour drive, so I got in the car, there was the two-hour drive to Berkeley, and I was literally dumped out of the car on uh, Terence's front step. I never heard of Terence at that time, 1972. Uh -huh. And I went in, and what happened then, I would still say, although we've had many 
wonderful talks and exciting, thrilling, and nutritious times in the meanwhile, that that was quite a miraculous chat. Many subjects came up, not psychedelics. I mean, many subjects came up, and every, every subject was the occasion of a discovery of a most miraculous resonance of ideas. How to grow mushrooms, outer space, I don't know, anything you could think of, all passed by in the course of an hour or two. In this way, we became friends, and this habit we had, this activity that we do, I mean, we never go for a hike or something like that. We sit in the evening and, and talk, and what happens is synergistic, um, miraculous growth, evolutionary. Well, I found I did, in the course of time, return to mathematics, even doing what I had done previously, chaos, but then chaos had become known. You see, my estimate of a century was off. It was a numerical error, one of my worst, <laughs> one of my best, because uh, life is a lot more fun since a hundred years became ten. See, like it's going faster now. And uh, I began in my work to think about applications to the problems of the world, to the evolution of consciousness, to the destruction of the planet, and, and so on. And in this uh, revitalization of my work, and eventually the whole field of mathematics, my conversations with Terence, whereas I think we thought of them as just good fun, that they did have a really fundamental influence on everything I've done since. So fun, or I would say fun is insulting. I mean thrilling uh, because of going to the edge, going beyond the edge, having company there, finding things which you can bring back and they work, and become part of everything you're doing. And along the way, Terence introduced me to this person he mentioned, Eric Yanch, who bothered me to write a paper, and that was the first time that I had tried writing for a journal or a book or something, the kind of thing that we had talked about, which I always considered to be just a little too far out to be condensed onto paper, to show to people who read, I mean, who are they? They're scholars in universities or something. So Eric Yanch uh, bothered me to write in this way, and what came out, I, I think, uh, although I wrote many in a way more practical understandable and valuable things in the meanwhile. If they're worth anything, they seem to be worth more than that. Nevertheless, that, that paper contained, uh, as a kind of clairvoyance, the very definite prefiguration of everything that's happened between then, 1975, and now, which is quite, quite a lot of development on the frontiers of mathematics, of reconnection between mathematics and the other um, departments in a university, most especially the social sciences, the things, uh, uh, therapies and the understanding of society and history and all white, what might be the most valuable when we come to try to interact with the creation of our future in uh, a conscious way. Then, <coughs> a little later, as uh, Rupert said, I was in Terence's living room, the phone rang, Terence answered, and he says, we have to go to the bus station to pick up Rupert Sheldrake. So who that sounds vaguely familiar, who's that? So in the car on the way to the bus station, Terence gave me, as only he can do, the uh, compressed 
into a nutshell poetic essence of Rupert's book on the hypothesis of formative causation. And, uh, and, and we, we plucked the lad from the bus station and took him home to the spider web. And then uh, we, we found, uh, I felt, another miracle, and that the synergy of two was extended to three. For me, a totally unexpected new frontier. I mean, the re close relationship of two people is well known, and the close relationship of three people is known but rare. And in the time since 1982, now there's seven years of this, I think we have all been uh, nourished in many ways and inspired by our relationship, by the reception of information from the field that takes place without effort in the context of our talks in private in the living room. So this weekend, as described as an experimental weekend, I think there are several different experiments. And one is to see if our trialogue can be exported uh, or shared. And there have already been a few experiments with dialogue, sharing dialogues in public, some more and some less successful. Uh, trialogue is more, it's the next frontier because um, it's very problematic even in private. And another experiment that um, we will have to attempt this weekend is the more, uh, the clear identification or the the self-consciousness of what each of our roles is in the process that takes place. My role is uh, chaos, and the, the reason is that actually Rupert and Terence have very well expressed their expectation for the assistance of mathematics in the development of their own thought. You need uh, models, you need uh, structures, and and uh, there is this new language of attractors, which seems to apply not only to the physical, but also the biological, and not only the biological, but also the social sciences. So this language, before chaos theory, was already a useful tool, an important technology for model building, for trying to understand the complex, the mysterious, but particularly with the advent of chaos theory, providing us with models for chaotic phenomenon, that opens up to view to the process of the mathematical assistance of understanding, opens up to this view all of those processes which previously were too complex to submit to any kind of understanding, verbalization, dialogue beyond some kind of wave of the hand exciting, it's a miraculous, this also works, but it does, a kind of a poetic resonance phenomenon in which without words, essentially, the idea is transferred from one individual to another. So it's opened up. These complex uh, phenomenon characterized by chaotic irregular, that is to say not well ordered in the previous paradigm, uh, space-time structure, for example, relationships among people, the states and change of states of society, the whole process of history, the intuitive experience, subjective experience of relationship and so on, all of this, what we always wanted to come under the 
the, the view of a better understanding. Suddenly it's possible, but although it's possible, it's not done. But we, we can do it, so uh, we, we can try to do it. And that means, if this is at all possible, that when these tools would be applied in uh, the areas of thought, you know, what these two guys are thinking about, what they have told you about, that the possibility there is to escalate those areas presently troubled by a certain vagueness, a certain difficulty in com communicating the definite what you think about it to somebody else, the vagueness which makes possible uh, the condemnation of orthodox scientific community trying to burn the book and so on, can sweep that confusion away through the application, the construction, the provision of the same kind of definite mathematic trustworthy models in these areas, consciousness, creativity, imagination, novelty, evolution, conscious participation in the creation of a future well worth living and able to live in a long-term basis on this planet. All that can be clarified in principle is now possible where previously it was impossible, but there's nobody even trying. So this uh, we are trying is the frontier of our own. Our experiment then is not only to somehow reproduce or share something we have done, but to continue our process over the frontier of our own understanding to a new understanding for us and including you in the process. One of the things that comes out of chaos theory that is very important, I think, for everybody to keep in mind because it is anchored in the bedrock of mathematics, for whatever that's worth, is that uh, the flutter of the moth's wing can trigger the hurricane. This is not a poetic statement. This is the fact of the matter within this kind of description of nature. In other words, very small changes create cascades into uh, where whole states shift and are perturbed. And this is the kind of situation that we are facing as a society and a planetary uh, species. We have the resources, we have uh, the, the knowledge, but what we seem to lack uh, is the will <coughs> to implement these things, to actually step back from, uh, from the abyss. So it has to come through a change of mind and this new mathematical stuff is telling us that uh, the intimations of mysticism, <coughs> the intimation of a possibility of transcendence is all firmly grounded. We just have to now, it's almost as though mathematics is the extreme cutting edge of human understanding. How can we quickly export these new understandings that release us from a need for closure, that free us from an either-or universe. How can we quickly export these models from the realm of research mathematics into the realm of, uh, of daily life? Well, I think that the, the way it's done is through replication of memes and generation of new 
ideas. So for me, more and more, the motivation to do these kinds of groups is I really see it as politics, almost at the viral level, that we are trying to create new languages and new concepts, and not only create them, but teach them to you, and we ourselves repeat them over and over again, and you feed back into this, and then we refine the meme, and then a meme is like a gene. It can be replicated. It can be replicated by either being simply repeated or by being told to others who then repeat it. And we have not seen language as the playing field of uh, the creation of the new paradigm, but that's really where it is. We can transform ourselves no more quickly than we transform our language. And the way we transform our language is by really pushing on the envelope of the act of communication. You know, the caterpillar in Alice in Wonderland says, say what you mean and mean what you say. I do. <laughs> and it's th this, this is the thing, a search for a clarity in a new domain of language. Rupert's notions revision causality. That means induct you into an entirely new way in which things happen. And this is, after all, uh, where we're all spending a lot of our time. Uh, the models that Ralph is working with show that the world is not an engine running down toward a heat death, but a tremendous kaleidoscope of unpredictable, creative, open-ended uh, activity on every level. I mean, it's really a dazzlingly kaleidoscopic vision. It's like a, it's like a, a, a Sufi hierophany or something, but we're seeing it on the screens of computer simulations of this mathematical domain that is also the neural domain, that is also the social domain, that is also the eco-planetary domain. This is not error. This is not uh, mysticism. This is the real facts of how it is, how the world fits together. It fits together through the infusion of its invisible soul the mathematical and field-oriented structures that make it into a whole, a cosmos in which we are living and which we can find our way in if we will open ourselves up to this image, see ourselves as microcosmic reflections of this macrocosmic order, the soul of human beings as a reflection of the world soul and then building of a modern vocabulary to describe and revivify these things and hopefully make it the world into a better place. Well, I think that's the notion. Uh, do either of you want to say anything? Yes, I can't resist telling the story about the bunny. Um, I'm going to tell you the story about the bunny, which is the fastest traveling meme in London right now. Um, the story happened recently in London, according to the friend of friend network through which it travels. Two neighbors on bad terms with each other. One lot of neighbors have a dog. 
The other have kids who have a bunny that lives in a hutch in the garden, or the yard, as you say in America. Well, the woman with the dog in one house was on bad terms with the other, and when one evening there was a scratching at the door, uh, she opened it, and there was her dog with the dead bunny in its mouth, all covered with, uh, with, with mud. And she was absolutely horrified. She couldn't bring herself to tell the neighbors what had happened. It was panicked. The only thing she could think of was to wash the bunny, which she did, and then she shampooed it. And then, with a hairdryer, she fluffed it all up until it looked as good as she could make it look. <laughs> and then, when the neighbors had gone to bed, she crept into their garden and put it back in the hutch. And then she went to bed. In the morning, as she'd expected, the dreadful moment arrived when there were sobs and cries and sounds of astonishment and agitation from the garden next door. So, after a while, she went and looked over the fence and said to them, what's the problem? And they were all looking into the hutch. The kids were shrieking. And she said, what's the problem? Is the bunny dead? And they said, yes, yes. It died yesterday morning, and then we buried it in the garden. <laughs> okay. <laughs> On, um... I will tell you our schedule and send you to the baths. If you haven't been to the baths, I highly recommend them. They're uh, the raison d'etre of the thing. <laughs> Thank you all very much for coming. I appreciate it. I'm sure my colleagues do as well. Thanks so much for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show was produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Music. Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing human potential and promoting positive social change. Your support helps us to continue to offer transformative programs and retreats that promote personal growth and collective well-being. To learn more about Esalen and how you can support our mission, visit our website at esalen.org. <laughs>